we are nearing the end of our study of gathered worship. And this morning we want to consider the, the heart of the worshiper. John MacArthur has written that worship is deliberate, purposeful, and active. Worship is not something that happens to us because we show up. It is an active engagement of our hearts with God. So, what should our hearts be like as we gather to worship? Much could be said about this, of course. Many sermons could be preached about it. Some of the things we've already talked about, such as the centrality of faith in our worship, we're going to consider just two characteristics of the heart this morning. That is, holy and heartfelt worship. Holy and heartfelt worship. So I pray that we might have soft hearts to hear this morning and that God might stir our hearts toward holy and heartfelt worship. So first of all, what is holy worship? The word holy generally refers to being set apart or distinct. So when we talk about God's holiness, we're talking about how he is creator and we are just creation. He is perfect. He is unmatched. He is set apart in his own category as God. And that also means that he is separate from all of the sin and all of the evil in this world. But then when we apply the word holiness to people, we're talking about being set apart from sinful things, not participating in the corruptions of the world, having purity in our thoughts and in our actions. In other words, the people who worship the true God should live in a way that is distinct from the people who do not. There ought to be a distinctiveness, a set-apartness to God's people. We should live as God's set-apart people. We should worship as God's set-apart people. Three different times the Old Testament says that we are to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, I've commented on those previously, and I've mentioned that I, I tend to think that is referring to worship in the light of God's holiness, worshiping God because He is the Holy One, But it is also true that those who come to worship God are supposed to be holy. The word holy occurs hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And many of those happen, occur in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in which we have these instructions for Israel's worship. Because the priests, the sacrifices, the people, the tabernacle, even the vessels used in worship were all supposed to be set apart for God. They were all supposed to be holy. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Ephesians 2, which is one of these sections in Ephesians we've referred to several times as we've talked about gathered worship, says that the household of God, referring to that, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We, the church, are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So in your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you look down into 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Here again, we're talking about the church as the the temple of God. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Can you see there that worshipers are supposed to be holy? Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church there is referred to as a holy nation, the new people of God set apart from the world to worship, to make much of of God as his holy people. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is another passage that talks about the church as the temple of God. And so then right after 2 Corinthians 6, the first verse in 2 Corinthians 7 says, "...since..." We have these promises, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And then to return to one of the most important worship verses in the Bible, Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is is supposed to be holy. Worshippers are supposed to be holy. But what does that mean? Because with Paul, we could easily cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, Romans 7. Or with Isaiah, we could say, woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So, for sinners like us, What does it even mean to be holy worshipers when our God is a consuming fire? Well, first of all, number one, it certainly means that we seek to come. In other words, we seek to come to God to gather for worship, rejoicing that Jesus Christ has made us holy before God. We do have a page turn there. We seek to come to God, to come gather for worship and draw near to Him, rejoicing that Jesus Christ has made us holy before God. In your Bible, look over in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God which must mean that he somehow makes us righteous through his suffering, the righteous for the unrighteous. He can only bring us to God by making us holy in God's sight. We could say that Jesus makes us legally holy without guilt before the law of God. That's what we call justification. So the Bible says that Christ Jesus became to us righteousness and sanctification. You know what sanctification means? It's from the word for holiness. It means being set apart to God. Christ Jesus became to us righteousness and sanctification. The Bible describes this holiness as the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It calls it the free gift of righteousness. It calls it the righteousness based on faith. It says that it is not a righteousness of our own, but the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Apart from Christ, there could be no worship at all because God is holy and separate from sinners. But we can come with, whole, with, with humble joy and celebrate the holiness from Christ that is ours through Christ and that is ours in Christ. And as a result, the New Testament loves to call Christians what? What word that means holy ones, set-apart ones? What's the word? Saints, right? We are saints, holy ones, through Christ, in Christ, only because of Christ. However, that is not the entire meaning of holy worship because the Bible also tells us to cleanse ourselves, to seek holiness, and to present ourselves to God as holy sacrifices. So while our relationship with God is based entirely upon the holiness which we have received as a gift through Christ, there are other ways in which we should pursue holiness in worship, and I'll list three of them. Number two, 
We seek to come with a cleansed conscience. To come draw near to God with a cleansed conscience, which means we should never gather to worship and allow ourselves to deliberately ignore the God-given awareness that we have committed a specific sin. 1 Peter 3.21 says that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Hebrews says that the Old Testament sacrifices could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but the blood of Christ can purify our conscience. So Hebrews says we can then draw near to God with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, having a good conscience does not mean being sinless. It does not mean that you have noticed every sin you've ever committed and gotten every single sin confessed to God. It doesn't mean anything like that. The point is that if I gather for worship and God has made me aware of some specific sin that I have committed, then I cannot just ignore that and carry on with my words of worship. I should talk to God about it. I should confess that sin to Him. If there's restitution I need to make with others, I should get to work on that restitution. Don't deliberately ignore a a defiled conscience. So holy worship means that we seek to come with a cleansed conscience. Now, before we go on to number three, can I just emphasize the wording of these points? Notice that each point begins with the words, we seek to come. And I worded it that way because we will not always remember these things. We will not always come like this. And that's okay. Sometimes God will use the gathered worship to remind us of Christ's righteousness. Sometimes He'll use the gathered worship to prick our consciences about a sin that needs to be dealt with. So the point is not that we must come perfectly aware of all these things, but that our desire is to come aware of these things. So number three, holy worship also means that we seek to come with a heart that has been desiring obedience. In your Bible again, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strain like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we seek to gather in worship with that in mind, with that kind of heart, the kind of heart that says, I want to die to sin and live to righteousness. I want to no longer be the sheep that's always straying away from the shepherd, but rather the sheep that is coming back to him. Now again, when we, when we arrive for gathered worship, we might be struggling Our heart might be slumping. We might not be desiring obedience as we come in the door. And God might use the service to help rekindle that desire in us. God is good and God is merciful. But we shouldn't want to come that way. Right? Our goal is that we would gather for worship at the conclusion of a week when we have been engaging in that struggle against sin that Hebrews chapter 12 talks about. We have been seeking to die to sin and live to righteousness. That is part of holy worship. And then number four, we seek to come with a heart that has been desiring to reflect the image of Christ. We know how much God is pleased with His Son, right? Like, Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that means that God is pleased when He sees in us the reflection of His Son. So, turn with me to 2 Peter now, just ahead a couple pages. 2 Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 3 and 4. His divine power 
has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What does it mean to be partakers of the divine nature? It means to be made more like Jesus Christ, to bear the image of Christ. And so our goal is that we would gather to worship God through Jesus, having just spent a week seeking to become more like Jesus. For we have been called to his own glory and excellence. So these are matters of holy worship, worship that cares about holiness. We will not always come with these things fresh and focused in our hearts, but they should be our goal. Now, I understand that there is a tension here that we have all struggled with, probably in one way or another, at one time or another. And it's kind of a twofold tension. First of all, we might say, if we are already holy in Christ, why worry about it? Or we might say, if we're never going to be perfectly holy in this life, which is true, then why worry about it? Why try? Now, the simple answer is 1 Peter 1, because God told us to seek to be holy. That's all we need to know. But in terms of worship, think of it like this. Suppose we sing, on a Sunday morning, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And then I go out of here, and I completely forget about that. And I love the world and the things of the world. And then I come back here the next week, and for some reason, Eric has us sing again. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Now, let's say that that morning, God convicts my heart using that song. Maybe there's also a scripture reading in that service that that reminds me from James that being the friend of the world is to be the enemy of God. And so I pray and I ask God to help me to change my heart. I seek his grace. And when I go back out into the world after that Sunday morning, I seek to not love the sinful things of the world. And that will be a battle and I might fail a number of times that week and I will have to be very humble and very prayerful and very dependent on God. I might be up and down and struggle. But what if I come to church then the next Sunday and for some odd reason, Eric's been so busy, we're just singing the same song service over and over again. And we, and we start singing again, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And I just came out of a week where that was truly my desire. That was my humble pursuit by God's grace. Now, how much more meaningful will that song be to me? And in a sense, how much more meaningful will that song be to God? from me. The words of our worship have increased meaning when they flow from a heart that has been striving to live in the light of them all week long. Now, again, I'm probably just repeating myself over and over again. I, I get it that sometimes the words of our worship will be what sparks us to go live in light of them. But do you see what I'm saying? That there is a tremendous depth and meaning to worship when we come and the words are what we have been seeking to live. The pursuit of holiness will not make us worthy before God. Christ alone does that. And the pursuit of holiness will never end in this life. We'll only be partway there. That's true. And yet, the pursuit of holiness brings a vibrance to worship and an integrity to worship that honors God. So let us, we should, we must seek holy worship. Now, our second characteristic this morning is heartfelt worship. Heartfelt. What role do feelings play in worship? How would you answer that question off the top of your head? What role do feelings 
play in worship. It is, of course, possible to make worship all about the feelings, the experience, the emotions. When we moved into this church building, uh, the, the decor was still left over from a couple churches before us, and what they had done was completely black out this entire, entire room, uh, which creates an, an ambiance. It creates a, a feeling. And so if you can make worship all about the feelings and, and basically say that if you feel like you're worshiping, then you are. And that fits very nicely with the spirit of our age, which says that your feelings are the most important part about you. Your feelings define your very identity. You are your feelings. And so when we live in a world like that, it's no surprise that some people make worship all about the feelings. On the other hand, it is also possible to say that truth is all that matters, not your stinking feelings. Your feelings change based on your sleep. Your feelings change based on how hungry you are. Your feelings change based on whether we got the thermostat set right in here today. So just listen to the Word of God and praise God no matter how you feel. Ignore your feelings. And different Christian denominations have put the emphasis in one direction or another. Some put a very high emphasis on emotional intensity and emotional expression, and others really downplay those things and put a very high emphasis on on truth and mind and will. So how should we think about our feelings as we gather for worship? And first of all, just a couple little, I don't know, technical things before we get into a couple of principles. First of all, in modern English, we use the word heart to frequently refer to our emotions. And it's very important to understand that that's not quite what the Bible means when it uses the word heart. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the Bible word heart is a word for your entire inner man. That includes intellect, that includes will, that includes emotion. Your heart is the whole spiritual self apart from your, apart from your body, your whole internal man. So, for example, when Jesus says, when Jesus says, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, he's not saying they're honoring, with me, honoring me with their lips, but their emotions aren't there. Look at the context. He's talking about their hypocritical disobedience. So heart in the Bible includes our emotions, but it's not, it, it, it doesn't mean emotions in the same way that in modern English we use that, that word. Um, and then just the second uh, little thing to note here before we begin is that there is a huge debate, and really has been ever since you know Greek philosophy 2,500 years ago, a, a huge debate about what, what, you know, like the difference between emotions and affections and desires and, and passions and impulses and feelings, and it's a big philosophical thing that's interesting, but I'm not trying to parse words this morning. Here's the simple point I want to make. God's Word tells us that worship should be felt. God's Word tells us that worship should be felt. And one of the ways it does that is by telling us that we should worship with our whole heart. Now, again, heart doesn't just mean emotions, but if we are supposed to worship with our whole heart, our whole inner man, then that means that worship should be felt. Psalm 9.1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Psalm 16, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Psalm 86, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Psalm 111, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. That was scripture reading this morning, right? In our call to worship. Note that the whole heart there isn't just for private worship, but for gathered worship too. And then in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus cited Deuteronomy 6, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So God is worthy of the right response of our whole being, mind, will, Emotions. 
or desires or affections or whatever terms we want to use. God is worthy of them all, right? Will you take your Bible now and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 9? In the 10 to 12-year-olds class this morning, we're going to study this passage together. Um, I just want to show us two verses and use them as to try to illustrate how worship can be felt. Jeremiah 9, 23, and then into 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices. Okay, here come three things. Steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Now, those three terms, let's pause there. Those three terms give us one brief way to summarize what's so amazing about God. What ought to completely capture your heart about God? Three things, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. So what does that mean? Steadfast love is God's kind, tender, and permanent commitment to your good. That is yours in Christ. God's kind, tender, and permanent commitment to your good. That's the first thing. The second thing is justice. Justice is God's certain purpose to punish and bring a permanent end to everything that is wrong. Every one of you could recount the things you hate about the world right now. God will certainly bring to a permanent end all that is wrong. And yet in Christ, that is not a threat to us, for there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is only good news. All that is wrong will be made right. Steadfast love, justice, and then righteousness. This is God's pure and perfect will, words, and works in all things. God's pure and perfect will, words, and works in all things. He always does everything right. That's what's worth boasting about. That is what's worth depending on and getting excited about. All right. So, as we have looked very briefly at those three truths in Jeremiah 9.24, has that been like facts in a classroom that you're supposed to memorize for a test? Were you writing them down like, oh, right, Wednesday we've got a quiz, and this sounds like the kind of thing he's going to put on a quiz? What were those words again? Wait, 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 teacher, wait, wait. Justice is what? It's the... Was it like that? Or did you feel anything? As we talked very briefly about Jeremiah 9.24. Was there any, I don't know, reassurance? Any little bit of encouragement? Did you breathe a little bit of rest? A little bit of peace? To be reminded of those truths, did you feel any trust or any gratitude for God's steadfast love or any little bit of joy? I mean, it was like two minutes long, right? So I'm not, it was just simple. And my point is not to give you a test. My point is not to make you feel bad. I'm trying to illustrate a couple things. First of all, what we're talking about here is responses that go beyond just the intellectual. You should hear those truths from Jeremiah 9.24, and you should say, I, I understand. And you should say, I agree. And you should say, I believe that. Those are essential responses. 
But God gave us mind and will and emotions intricately connected so that we could seek to worship God by also feeling the truths. And notice also that when I mentioned some of the things you might have felt there, I mentioned a variety of responses or feelings or emotions or maybe affections. The point is there's a variety of right internal responses of worship from delight and joy and things like that to conviction and grief and things like that to peace and reassurance and and those kind of things. These are expressions of our whole being toward God. Now, think about this too. As I gave those brief definitions of steadfast love and justice and righteousness, could you, um, like, like outwardly, could you visibly tell who in the room was feeling those truths? Could you tell? Now, I've got a better shot at it than you because I see faces. But the answer is sort of. It depends, right? Our outward responses depend on the person in the situation. One person might hear those truths and they can't help but smile. And some of you are like that. Another person might hear those truths and because of what they've been going through this week, the evil they've faced this week, they might have tears start to come to their eyes when we talk about God's promise of justice. The outward form of emotional responses is related to many factors, including both personality and culture. But God sees and knows our internal responses, regardless of how or how much they show on the outside. You follow me? You can worship God by feeling truths about him in your heart, whether or not they show very effusively on the outside. I'm one of those people that can feel very intensely and remain extremely calm on the outside to a fault. I stood in my sister's kitchen once and she said to me, Tim, are you happy? And I said, yeah. And she said, tell your face. But God sees, and and by the way, that makes me very gracious with all of you as you listen to me preach. I assure you, I don't read much into your faces because I know that when I sit there and listen to somebody else, I'm not always helpful in how I look. And by the way, that also makes me very thankful for those of you who are helpful in how you look when someone's preaching. Uh, Can I just pause and tell the story about Pastor John? Because I don't think I've ever told you all this. There... (laughs) There was a Sunday when Pastor John preached like nine months ago, and I was sitting over here with Crystalline. And it is, it is true that Crystalline and I are not the best students when we sit together and listen. We tend to talk and pass notes and sometimes not be the best. I don't know what happened on that Sunday morning, but Pastor John swore that at one point in his sermon, I started doing this. Like, <laughs> and I so flustered him and threw him off. And I never did that. So I don't know if Crystal and I were, like, whispering about something or if I just, like, fixed my collar or what happened. But he was, after the service, he was like, Pastor Tim, what did I say? (laughs) That you gave me the, like, slit the throat motion. All right. So... (laughs) The point is that worship should be felt. And even as we looked at Jeremiah 9.24, I hope you could see a little bit of that. Now, maybe your heart was just uninterested in those truths. Maybe you didn't feel anything. And if so, you know, we'll we'll, we'll come back to that in in a little bit. But, But the point is that there are many, many different ways in which we can feel truths, not just think not just intellectually assent to truths or even agree to them with our, our will. And by the way, what's there at the end of Jeremiah 9.24, the last sentence that we didn't read? For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
God himself delights. He delights in love and justice and righteousness. God feels. Now, God is not subject to the appetites we are and the emotional ups and downs we are, and he doesn't feel grumpy when he's hungry, and he doesn't feel sinful desires like us. Yet, God has affections. And so if God himself delights in steadfast love and justice and righteousness, then certainly it is worship for you to delight in those things too. It honors him for you to delight in what he delights in. So let me now just quote to you a number of passages that illustrate how worship should be not just intellectual, but also something that we feel. And there are, this is a long list of references that are included in your in your handout there. So just, just listen as I read through these, these many examples. Psalm 18.1. And I, I won't read all these references. I'm just going to read through the verses. <clears throat> I love you, O Lord, my strength. Oh, taste and see. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. You who love the Lord hate evil. The Gospels record that Jesus grieved over wrong. And sometimes the Old Testament prophets rebuked Israel for failing to grieve what they should have grieved. Psalm 100 verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When Jesus had ascended to heaven, as difficult as that was for his disciples, Luke records that they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And 1 Peter 1.8 says about Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So we see from those passages that to be at rest in your heart because of Christ is worship. To hate or grieve what is evil, including our own sin, is worship. To feel a deep gratitude is worship. To fear God is worship. To long for him or to pour out your heart before him is worship. To delight or rejoice or shout or sing is worship. Worship is not just knowing the right things and doing the right things, though it is both of those things, but worship is also feeling as we should in response to who God is and what God has done. God is worthy of heartfelt worship. I'll paraphrase Jonathan Edwards, of course. He's one of the writers who, who wrote very extensively about this, C.S. Lewis also. And Edwards said, basically, if your religion consists of nothing but affections, you do not have true religion. And if your religion has no affections, you do not have true religion. God is so great and so good that anyone who comes to truly know him through Christ cannot remain unmoved by the goodness and greatness of God in Christ. Now, 
You might be thinking, come on, Pastor Tim, our emotions are not trustworthy at all. As I said earlier, we can feel different things based on how well we slept or whether we got breakfast or who just said something that bothered us or what kind of music is playing in the background, right? And that's true. Emotions and desires can be all over the map. But we're not trying to trust our feelings, nor are we trying to follow our feelings. We haven't said anything about that. We're seeking to engage our feelings in ways that honor God because he's worthy of all of us. That's what we're trying to do. So let me just finish by sharing a few just very practical pastoral thoughts about our feelings and gathered worship. First of all, a really simple, helpful test we can always use with our emotions is to ask, what are my feelings about? That's a helpful way in everyday life to make sure that we're not just trusting or following our feelings. But it's also helpful in worship. Let's say we're in the middle of a gathered worship service here, and let's say there's a lot of emotion. Maybe a number of people are crying, or maybe it's just really energetic singing. You can just kind of feel the energy in the room. And either way, let's just suppose that for some odd reason, someone just walked on stage and the music stopped, and the spotlights turned off, and the room lights all turned on. And then suppose that person asked us, what, what is it that you're crying about? Or what is it that you're singing so energetically about? If our feelings are, are healthy worship, then it won't be hard for us to answer that question. We'll be aware of what we were just singing about. We'll be aware of what Scripture was just read or what the pastor was just preaching about. In the midst of our intense emotion, if someone asked, what do you feel so strongly about, it might take us a second to think about it, but we'd be like, oh, right, right, we've just been singing about this, and then we were singing about this and that connection of truths, and then we read these verses. So what I'm saying is worship emotions aren't just random. They come in the light of God's truth and things that God is doing in our heart. Now, I know that emotions are somewhat unpredictable. You might hear the same truths on one Sunday, and you just bawl, and you hear them again two months later, and you don't feel them nearly that intensely because of whatever is going on in mind and heart and body and circumstances at that time. I know that. But the point is that healthy worship emotions will be connected to things God is doing in our hearts by His goodness and greatness. They won't just be like completely random feelings. Now, what about emotions and music? Most people know what it's like to feel intensely while listening to certain music, even if we're not paying any attention to what the song is about. I had a, last fall, I was, uh, I, uh, no, 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 earlier this spring, I was, I was driving and I heard a song I'd never heard before. This is a song with lyrics. And I could not, follow, I couldn't understand the lyrics. I was driving in the vehicle, and I just couldn't, I didn't hear them. But I love the music. And I got home, and I was like, man, I got to go look at those lyrics, and I sure hope they're good because I love that music. <laughs> but I don't know what the song was about. Uh, and it turned out that it was really sweet lyrics that I liked a lot. Um, so uh, we also know that music connects emotionally in powerful ways. And we also know that music can be used to manipulate a crowd. We know that in a hyped-up crowd, it can feel like everyone's worshiping, even if many people have no clue what they're worshiping about. It's just an emotional experience, but it's not actually worship. So we'll talk about music's effect on us another time. For now, just two practical thoughts about worship music and our emotions. First of all, use the what question that we just talked about. When you're feeling very intensely as you listen to worship music, just ask yourself, what am I feeling so strongly about? What is this song about? Oh, right. Christ has conquered all. Grace is greater than all my sin. It is well with my soul. His mercy is more. He will hold me fast. Right, right. I I, I should feel strongly about this. Right? So just use the what question. Secondly, don't be too cynical about the emotional power of music. Just because music gets abused 
And just because even within Christianity, sometimes worship is created as just a, an emotional experience with no truth, don't let that make you cynical about God's good gift of music. Think of it like this. Suppose we have a truth about Christ. It doesn't matter what it is. A truth about Christ, it's a truth that you believe, okay? Now, over here we have that truth about Christ stated without music. And then over here we have that same truth about Christ stated, sung in lyrics with music. Same truth. What if that truth, which you believe, feels more meaningful to you with music than without? Is that a bad thing? And I would say, no, it's not. It's actually part of God's good gift of music. Songs that combine biblical texts with appropriate music are designed by God to connect with your whole person. Intellect, emotion, will. Music should support and strengthen healthy affections. And you don't need to be cynical about that as if those feelings are fake or meaningless. Some of you are overthinkers. There is an overthinkers club. I'm a member, and some of you are club members with me. And overthinkers can be like, oh, sure, like, I love that truth about Jesus so much more when there's music going on. What's wrong with me? I'm so messed up. No, God is using the gift of music to help you love that truth. It's okay. Don't be afraid to allow God's gift of music to help lift your heart toward him. Now, do ask the what question. Don't just seek some emotional experience devoid of any truth or anything. But let God's gift of music grab your heart and and pull it toward him with those truths. All right. Finally, um, seek right affections. That's clear from what we've said this morning, right? Seek right affections, but don't depend upon them and don't despair when you don't feel them. John Piper became well-known partly through the publication of his book, Desiring God. A few years later, he wrote another book called When I Don't Desire God because every Christian experiences ups and downs in our desire for God. So seek right affections, but don't depend upon them, and don't despair when you don't feel them. But also, pray for them. And maybe this is something that for some of you, you've never done. Pray that God will help you love what you ought to love. Pray that God will help you rejoice, that will help you delight, that he'll help you hate, that he'll help you grieve and help you weep and help you celebrate, and help you rest. If you're frustrated by the dullness of your own heart toward things, then pray and say, God, stir up my heart. Help me to feel these things as I should. Help me to feel these things in a way that honors you. And then finally, when you do experience godly affections, when your heart feels hatred for evil, when your heart grieves over your own sin, when your heart is excited about serving God, when you are resting peacefully in the promises of Christ, when you honestly feel like you could shout for joy in the Lord, then recognize that as a good gift from God and enjoy it. God is being kind to you. God is shepherding your heart when that happens. Thank him for that. God, thank you for helping me love that truth. Thank you for helping me get excited about that. Thank you for helping me hate that thing which I should hate. Thank you for helping me rest in that. Those feelings may go away. But you don't look at, you don't look at annual flowers in your garden and say, nope, not going to enjoy you because I know what you're going to do. <laughs> don't do that with your feelings either. Don't depend on them. Don't despair when they're not there. Thank God for them when they are. Enjoy those right affections and seek them. Pray for them. 
And in particular, in terms of what we're studying in this series on gathered worship, seek them and pray for them as you come to gather with us. Pray that you would not just intellectually and with your will click with these truths, but with your whole person. That's part of worship. So let us seek to worship God in holy, heartfelt worship. I'm going to close this time of preaching with a a benediction, a, a prayer in the form of a benediction, and then we'll be transitioning into our prayer meeting together. Pastor John will be down in just a minute. Um, to lead that, and it will start shortly. I want to encourage you during prayer meeting to pray together about holy, heartfelt worship. Take the sermon handout to remind you what we talked about. Use it as a guide for prayer and pray that for, for one another. Maybe share with one another. Here's one area in which I would love to feel I just don't hate sin like I want to hate sin. Or I just don't delight in this like I know I should delight in it to honor God. And then pray for one another in that. So let that be part of prayer meeting today. In prayer meeting, Pastor John's also going to give you a copy of our missions partners in Turkey's latest update um, so that you can kind of be refreshed and know what's going on before they're here next Sunday um, so that you can interact with them more more helpfully. So prayer meeting in just a minute and 10 to 12s. Remember... Uh, when I finish this benediction, you guys come on back for, for Bible study. This benediction, this prayer, comes from the wording of the end of Second Peter 3. We've been in First and Second Peter often this morning. So this is phrases, sentences from Second Peter 3, 11 through 18. May you be the sort of people you ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. May you be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. May you grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. May the Lord bless you.